six, ovaries of this kind, till one day, paying them a farewell visit, I chanced to come upon several nests. A black and white creeping warbler suddenly became much alarmed as I approached a crumbling old stump in a dense part of the forest. He alighted upon it, chirped sharply, ran up and down its sides, and finally left it with much reluctance. The nest, which contained three young birds nearly fledged, was placed upon the ground, at the foot of the stump, and in such a position that the color of the young harmonized perfectly with the bits of bark, sticks, etc. lying about. My eye rested upon them for the second time before I made them out. They hugged the nest very closely, but as I put down my hand they scampered off with loud cries for help, which caused the parent birds to place themselves almost within my reach. The nest was nearly a little dry grass arranged in a thick bed of dry leaves. This was amid a thick undergrowth, moving on into a passage of large, stately hemlocks, with only here and there a small beech or maple rising up into the perennial twilight. I paused to make out a note which was entirely new to me. It is still in my ear, though unmistakably a bird note. It yet suggested the bleeding of a tiny lambkin. Presently the birds appeared, a pair of the solitary vireo. They came flitting from point to point, alighting only for a moment at a time. The male silent, but the female uttering this strange, tender note. It was a rendering into some new sylvan dialect of the human sentiment of maidenly love. It was really pathetic in its sweetness and childlike confidence and joy. I soon discovered that the pair were building a nest upon a low branch a few yards from me. The male flew cautiously to the spot, and adjusted something, and the twain moved on, the female calling to her mate at intervals, lovey-lovey with a cadence and tenderness in the tone that rang in the ear long afterward. The nest was suspended to the fork of a small branch, as is usual with the vireos, plentifully lined with lichens and bound and rebound with masses of coarse spider webs. There was no attempt at concealment except in the neutral tints, which made it look like a natural growth of the dim, gray woods. Continuing my random walk, I next paused in a low part of the woods, where the larger trees began to give place to a thick second growth that covered an old bark peeling. I was standing by a large maple, when a small bird darted quickly away from it, as if it might have come out of a hole near its base. As the bird paused a few yards from me, and began to chirp uneasily, my curiosity was at once excited, when I saw it was the female morning ground warbler, and remembered that the nest of this bird had not yet been seen by any naturalist, that not even Dr. Brewer had ever seen the eggs, I felt that here was something worth looking for, so I carefully began the search, exploring inch by inch the ground, the base and roots of the tree, and the various shrubby growths about it, till, finding nothing, and fearing I might really put my foot in it, I bethought me to withdraw to a distance and after some delay return again, and, thus forewarned, note the exact point from which the bird flew, this I did, and, returning, had little difficulty in discovering the nest, it was placed but a few feet from the maple tree, in a bunch of ferns, and about six inches from the ground, it was quite a massive nest, composed entirely of the stalks and leaves of dry grass with an inner lining of fine, dark brown roots, the eggs, three in number, were of light flesh color, uniformly specked with fine brown specks, the cavity of the nest was so deep that the back of sitting bird sank below the edge, in the top of a tall tree, a short distance farther on, I saw the nest of the red-tailed hawk, a large mass of twigs and dry sticks, the young had flown, but still lingered in the vicinity, and, as I approached, the mother bird flew about over me, squealing in a very angry, savage manner, 
tufts of the hair and other indigestible material of the common meadow mouse lay around on the ground beneath the nest. As I was about leaving the woods, my half almost brushed the nest of the red ant vireo, which hung basket-like on the end of a low, drooping branch of the beech. I should never have seen it had the bird kept her place. It contained three eggs of the bird's own, and one of the cow bunning. The strange egg was only just perceptibly larger than the others. Yet three days after, when I looked into the nest again and found all but one egg hatched, the young interloper was at least four times as large as either of the others, and with such a superabundance of bowels as to almost smother his bedfellows beneath them, that the intruder should fare the same as the rightful occupants, and thrive with them, was more than ordinary pollock, but that it alone should thrive, devouring, as it were, all the rest is one of those freaks of nature in which she would seem to discourage the homely virtues of prudence and honesty. Weeds and parasites had the odds greatly against them, yet they wage a very successful war nevertheless. The woods hold not such another gem as the nest of the hummingbird. The finding of one is an event to date from. It is the next best thing to finding an eagle's nest. I have met with but two, both by chance. One was placed on the horizontal branch of a chestnut tree, with a solitary green leaf forming a complete canopy, about an inch and a half above it, the repeated spiteful dartings of the bird passed my ears, as I stood under the tree, caused me to suspect that I was intruding upon someone's privacy, and following it with my eye, I soon saw the nest, which was in process of construction, adopting my usual tactics of secreting myself nearby, I had the satisfaction of seeing the tiny artist at work, it was the female, and assisted by her mate, at intervals of two or three minutes she would appear with a small tuft of some cockney substance in her beak, dart a few times through and around the tree, and alighting quickly in the nest arrange the material she had brought, using her breast as a model. The other nest I discovered in a dense forest on the side of a mountain. The sitting bird was disturbed as I passed beneath her. The whirring of her wings arrested my attention, when, after a short pause, I had the good luck to see, through an opening in the leaves, the bird returned to her nest, which appeared like a mere wart or excrescence on a small branch. The hummingbird, and like all others, does not alight upon the nest, but flies into it. She enters it as quick as a flash, but as light as any feather. Two eggs are the complement. They are perfectly white, and so frail that only a woman's fingers may touch them. Incubation lasts about ten days. In a week the young have flown. The only nest like the hummingbird's and comparable to it in neatness and symmetry, is that of the blue-gray gnat catcher. This is often saddled upon the limb in the same manner, though it is generally more or less pendant, it is deep and soft, composed mostly of some vegetable down, covered all over with delicate tree lichens, and, except that it is much larger, appears almost identical with the nest of the hummingbird, but the nest of nests, the ideal nest, after we have left the deep woods, is unquestionably that of the Baltimore Oriole. It is the only perfectly pensile nest we have. The nest of the orchard oriole is indeed mainly so, but this bird generally builds lower and shallower, more after the manner of the vireos. The Baltimore oriole loves to attach its nest to the swaying branches of the tallest elms, making no attempt at concealment, but satisfied if the position be high and the branch pendant. This nest would seem to cost more time and skill than any other bird structure. A peculiar flax-like substance seems to be always sought after and always found, the nest when completed assumes the form of a large, suspended gourd, the walls are thin but firm, and proof against the most driving rain, the mouth is hemmed or overhanded with horse hair, 
and the sides are usually sewed through and through with the same, not particular as to the matter of secrecy, the bird is not particular as to material, so that it be of the nature of strings or threads, a lady friend once told me that while working by an open window, one of these birds approached during her momentary absence, and, seizing a skein of some kind of thread or yarn, made off with it to its half-finished nest, but the perverse yarn caught fast in the branches, and, in the bird's efforts to extricate it, got hopelessly tangled, she tugged away at it all day, but was finally obliged to content herself with a few detached portions, the fluttering strings were an eyesore to her ever after, and passing and repassing, she would give them a spiteful jerk, as much as to say, there is that confounded yarn that gave me so much trouble, from Pennsylvania, Vincent Barnard to whom I am indebted for other curious facts sent me this interesting story of an oriole, he says a friend of his, curious in such things, on observing the bird beginning to build, hung out near the prospective nest skeins of many colored zephyr yarn, which the eager artist readily appropriated, he managed it so that the bird used nearly equal quantities of various high, bright colors, the nest was made unusually deep and capacious, and it may be questioned if such a thing of beauty was ever before woven by the cunning of a bird, not all, by far the most genial of American ornithologists, relates the following, a female oriole, which I observed attentively, carried off to her nest a piece of lamp with ten or twelve feet long, this long string and many other shorter ones were left hanging out for about a week before both the ends were waddled into the sides of the nest, some other little birds making use of similar materials, at times twitched these flowing ends, and generally brought out the busy Baltimore from her occupation in great anger, I may perhaps claim indulgence for adding a little more of the biography of this particular bird, as a representative, also, of the instincts of her race, she completed the nest in about a week's time, without any aid from her mate, who, indeed, appeared but seldom in her company, and was now become nearly silent, for fibrous material she broke, hackled, and gathered the flax of the asclepias and hibiscus stalks, tearing off long strings and flying with them to the scene of her labors, she appeared very eager and hasty in her pursuits, and collected her materials without fear or restraint, while three men were working in the neighboring walks, and many persons visiting the garden, her courage and perseverance were indeed truly admirable, if watched too narrowly, she saluted with her usual scolding, T.S.H.R.R., 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 seeing no reason, probably, why she should be interrupted in her indispensable occupation, though the males were now comparatively silent on the arrival of their busy mates, I could not help observing this female and a second, continually vociferating apparently in strife, at last she was observed to attack this second female very fiercely, who slyly intruded herself at times into the same tree where she was building, these contests were angry and often repeated, to account for this animosity, I now recollected that two fine males had been killed in our vicinity, and I therefore concluded the intruder to be left without a mate, yet she had gained the affections of the consort of the busy female, and thus the cause of their jealous quarrel became apparent, having obtained the confidence of her faithless paramour, the second female began preparing to weave a nest in an adjoining elm, by tying together certain pendant twigs as a foundation, the male now associated chiefly with the intruder, whom he even assisted in her labor, yet did not wholly forget his first partner, who called on him one evening in a low, affectionate tone, which was answered in the same strain, while they were thus engaged in friendly whispers, suddenly appeared the rival, and a violent rencontre ensued, 
so that one of the females appeared to be greatly agitated, and fluttered with spreading wings as if considerably hurt. The male, though prudently neutral in the contest, showed his culpable partiality by flying off with his paramour, and for the rest of the evening left the tree to his pugnacious consort. Cares of another kind, more imperious and tender, at length reconciled, or at least terminated, these disputes with the jealous females, and by the aid of the neighboring bachelors, who are never wanting among these and other birds, peace was at length completely restored, by the restitution of the quiet and happy condition of monogamy, let me not forget to mention the nest under the mountain ledge, the nest of the common peewee, a modest mossy structure, with four pearl white eggs, looking out upon some wild scene and overhung by beetling crags, after all has been said about the elaborate, high-hung structures, few nests, perhaps, awaken more pleasant emotions in the mind of the beholder than this of the peewee, the gray, silent rocks, with caverns and dens where the fox and the wolf lurk, and just out of their reach, in a little niche, as if it grew there, the mossy tenement, nearly every high projecting rock in my range has one of these nests, following a trout stream up a wild mountain gorge, not long since, I counted five in the distance of a mile, all within easy reach, but safe from the minks and the skunks, and well housed from the storms, in my native town I know a pine and oak clad hill, round topped, with a bold, precipitous front extending halfway around it, near the top, and along this front or side, there crops out a ledge of rocks unusually high and cavernous, one immense layer projects many feet, allowing a person or many persons, standing upright, to move freely beneath it, there is a delicious spring of water there, and plenty of wild, cool air, the floor is of loose stone, now trod by sheep and foxes, once by the Indian and the wolf, how I have delighted from boyhood to spend a summer day in this retreat or take refuge there from a sudden shower, always the freshness and coolness, and always the delicate mossy nest of the Phoebe bird, the bird keeps her place till you are within a few feet of her, when she flits to a near branch, and, with many oscillations of her tail, observes you anxiously, since the country has become settled, this peewee has fallen into the strange practice of occasionally placing its nest under a bridge, hay shed, or other artificial structure, where it is subject to all kinds of interruptions and annoyances, when placed thus, the nest is larger and coarser, I know a hayloft beneath which a pair has regularly placed its nest for several successive seasons, arranged along on a single pole, which sags down a few inches from the flooring it was intended to help support, are three of these structures, marking the number of years the birds had nested there, the foundation is of mud with a superstructure of moss, elaborately lined with hair and feathers, nothing can be more perfect and exquisite than the interior of one of these nests, yet a new one is built every season, three broods, however, are frequently reared in it, the peewees, as a class, are the best architects we have, the kingbird builds a nest altogether admirable, using various soft cotton and woolen substances, and sparing neither time nor material to make it substantial and warm, the green-crested peewee builds its nest in many instances wholly of the blossoms of the white oak, the wood peewee builds a neat, compact socket-shaped nest of moss and lichens on a horizontal branch, there is never a loose end or shred about it, the sitting bird is largely visible above the rim, she moves her head freely about, and seems entirely at her ease, a circumstance which I had never observed in any other species, the nest of the great crested flycatcher is seldom free from snake skins, three or four being sometimes woven into it, about the thinnest, shallowest nest, for its situation, 
that can be found is that of the turtle dove. A few sticks and straws are carelessly thrown together, hardly sufficient to prevent the eggs from falling through or rolling off. The nest of the passenger pigeon is equally hasty and insufficient, and the squads often fall to the ground and perish. The other extreme among our common birds is furnished by the Ferrugenus thrush, which collects together a mass of material that would fill a half bushel measure, or by the fish hawk, which adds to and repairs its nest year after year, till the whole would make a cart load. The rarest of all nests is that of the eagle, because the eagle is the rarest of all birds. Indeed, so seldom is the eagle seen, that its presence always seems accidental. It appears as if merely pausing on the way, while bound for some distant and known region. One September, while a youth, I saw the ring-tailed eagle, an immense, dusky bird, the sight of which filled me with awe. It lingered about the hills for two days, some young cattle, a two-year-old colt and half a dozen sheep were at pasture on a high ridge that led up to the mountain, and in plain view of the house. On the second day, this dusky monarch was seen flying about above them. Presently he began to hover over them, after the manner of a hawk watching for mice. He then with extended legs let himself slowly down upon them, actually grappling the backs of the young cattle, and frightening the creatures so that they rushed about the field in great consternation, and finally, as he grew bolder and more frequent in his descents, the whole herd broke over the fence, and came tearing down to the house, like mad. It did not seem to be an assault with intent to kill, but was, perhaps, a stratagem resorted to in order to separate the herd and expose the lambs, which hugged the cattle very closely. When he occasionally alighted upon the oaks that stood near, the branch could be seen to sway and bend beneath him. Finally, as a rifleman started out in pursuit of him, he launched into the air, set his wings, and sailed away southward. A few years afterward, in January, another eagle passed through the same locality, alighting in a field near some dead animal, but carried briefly, so much by way of identification. The bird is common to the northern parts of both hemispheres, and places its area on high, precipitous rocks, a pair built on an inaccessible shelf of rock along the Hudson for eight successive years. A squad of revolutionary soldiers also found a nest along this river, and had an adventure with the bird that came near costing one of their number his life. His comrades let him down by a rope to secure the eggs or young, when he was attacked by the female eagle with such fury that he was obliged to defend himself with his knife. In doing so, by a knee stroke, he nearly severed the rope that held him, and was drawn up by a single strand from his perilous position. Audubon, from whom this anecdote is taken figures and describes this bird as the golden eagle, though I have little doubt that Wilson was right, and that the golden eagle is a distinct species. The sea eagle also builds on high rocks. According to Audubon, though Wilson describes the nest of one which he saw near Great Egg Harbor, in the top of a large yellow pine, it was a vast pile of sticks, sods, sedge, grass, reeds, etc. five or six feet high by four broad, and with little or no concavity. It had been used for many years, and he was told that the eagles made it a sort of home or lodging place in all seasons. This agrees with the description which Audubon gives of the nest of the bald eagle. There is evidently a little confusion on both sides. The eagle in all cases uses one nest, with more or less repair, for several years. Many of our common birds do the same. The birds may be divided, with respect to the sand kindred points, into five general classes. First those that repair and appropriate the last year's nest, as the wren, swallow, bluebird, great crested flycatcher, 
owls, eagles, fishhawk, and a few others. Secondly, those that build anew each season, though frequently rearing more than one brood in the same nest. Of these, the Phoebe bird is a well-known example. Thirdly, those that build a new nest for each brood, which includes by far the greatest number of species. Fourthly, a limited number that make no nest of their own, but appropriate the abandoned nests of other birds. Finally, those who use no nest at all, but deposit their eggs in the sand, which is the case with a large number of aquatic fowls. Thus the common gull breeds in vast numbers on the sandbars or sand islands off the south coast of Long Island. A little dent is made in the sand, the eggs are dropped, and the old birds go their way. In due time the eggs are hatched by the warmth of the Sunday and the little creatures shift for themselves. In July countless numbers of them, of different ages and sizes, swarm upon these sandy wastes. As the waves roll out, they rush down the beach, picking up a kind of sea gluten, and then hasten back to avoid the next breaker. Birds in their relation to agriculture from the proceedings of the Nebraska ORNIDHOLOGISDS Union January, 1901, by Lawrence Bruner, by permission, when civilized man takes possession of new regions and begins cultivating the soil and establishes his sovereignty there, the equilibrium as it existed upon his arrival is very quickly disturbed. One or more of the many forms of life plant and animal that were previously held within certain limits gain ascendancy. The introduction of new crops that furnish an abundance of the proper food for some insect, enables this form to increase out of all proportions and harm soon results. The killing off of certain other forms of life that naturally keep still others in check also assists in disturbing the equilibrium further. The cutting down and clearing away of forests removes the shelter and homes of others as does also the turning under of prairie grasses. Then, too, many of the natural residents of primeval forests and virgin prairies shun the sight of man, hence they gradually withdraw from the region, and their influence for good or evil goes with them. Since the majority of such forms are timid and inoffensive creatures, their withdrawal only adds that much more to the already overbalanced conditions. Year by year the gap which at first was scarcely noticeable becomes widened so that frequent inroads are made and harm results. Instead of trying to ascertain the true cause for all this trouble perhaps exactly the wrong thing is done by the settlers. This of course only has the effect of further widening the gap between safety and danger, since an insect or other animal becomes noticeably harmful only when present in alarming numbers. It stands to a reason that anything which favors such an abnormal increase is a factor in disturbing nature and should be quickly rectified where possible. In order that these disturbances should be looked after the all-wise God of the universe created birds and gave them the power of flight that they might the more readily move about rapidly from place to place, where their services might be needed in balancing affairs. Hence birds have naturally and rightfully been called the balancers in nature. This being true, let us see just what their relations are to agriculture. The farmer sows in order that he may reap an increased measure of what he has sown. In doing this he must first turn over the soil. This destroys many existing plants as well as animals that depend upon them for food. The plants thus turned down cannot regain their position and must of necessity die. Not so with many of the animals, however, which soon work their way to the surface. Some of these attack the growing plants which have been made to occupy the place of those destroyed by the plow. Others take wing and seek suitable food in adjoining districts where they add to the numbers already drawing upon the vegetation up to the point of possible continued supply. Here, then, the scales begin to vibrate. In the field the new and tender crop entices the ever-shifting individuals of myriads of forms that have been crowded out elsewhere. 
the result here to island or would be very disastrous were it not for the timely visit of flocks of birds likewise in search of food. It is during the period of first settlement of a country, when the fields are small, few and widely separated, that injury may and frequently does result from birds. It is then a problem that needs careful consideration, not only for the time being, but also for the future welfare of that country. If animal life is destroyed indiscriminately and without intelligent forethought, calamities unforeseen are sure to follow in the not distant future. Birds can be full to man in many ways. They can benefit him by carrying the seeds of various plants from place to place so as to assist him in establishing new groves in which to find shelter from the cold in winter and refuge from the heat of the noonday sun in summer. They plant various shrubs by the wayside that spring up and later are laden with luscious fruit. They also carry the spawn of fishes and small crustaceans among their feathers into new waters, and feed upon the countless seeds of weeds that are scattered broadcast over the face of the earth. Some kinds live almost exclusively upon insects, while others hunt out the small rodents that would, if left to themselves, destroy great quantities of grain and other vegetation. Still other birds benefit mankind by acting as scavengers in the removal of putrid and other offensive matter which would endanger our health. In addition to all these very direct benefits which are brought about by the presence of birds, man is further indebted to these creatures for the cheer which their gay music bright plumage and pleasant manners bring to him. The birds form a carefully organized army of police which is engaged in keeping affairs balanced in nature. But we can go even further summing up the benefits that men may derive from the birds. A great many kinds make excellent food, while others furnish sport and pleasure to a large number of men and boys who seem to require a certain kind of entertainment while accompanied with dog and gun. Dead birds when embalmed as mummies and attached to the headgear worn by some girls and women are also claimed to cause much happiness. Birds as enemies. It would be ridiculous for me to assert here that no injury ever results from the presence of birds on the farm or in the orchard. Quite a number of different species are continually stepping over to the wrong side of the ledger, as it were, and committing depredations of various kinds which if considered alone would render the perpetrators liable to severe punishment in some cases even unto death. Some of the crimes that can be charged to the feathered tribe are cherry and berry stealing, grape puncturing, apple pecking, corn pulling, grain eating, the unintentional carrying from place to place of some kinds of scale insects that happen to crawl on their legs and feet, the possible spreading of dog cholera by crows and buzzards, the robbing of the poultry yard, and lastly some birds are accused of making noises that awaken us from our slumbers in the morning. Some of these crimes are genuine and are to be deplored while others are more imaginary than real. A few of them could be prevented in part or altogether, while others might be diminished if we were inclined to take the trouble to do it. After all that can be said pro and con concerning the fullness of birds in general there remains no doubt, in the minds of thinking people at least, as to the value of these creatures, it is only the vicious, biased, and thoughtless persons who continue ruthlessly to destroy birds indiscriminately without first pausing to consider whether or not it is a proper thing to do whether it is right or wrong, food habits, so varied is this task of evening up in nature that if attended to properly the workers must be numerous in individuals and possess widely different habits, that such is the case can readily be seen by the following brief account of the various groups of our Nebraska birds, along with brief statements of their food habits, the grebes and loons feed chiefly upon snails and other aquatic animals such as are found about their haunts, they also capture many grasshoppers and similar insects that happen in their way. They cannot, therefore, be classed among the especially beneficial birds. 
neither can they be termed injurious on account of what they eat. The gulls, provided as they are with long wings and great powers for flight, are not confined to the seacoast, hence they reach far inland in their migrations, feeding extensively upon insects like locusts, june beetles, crickets, etc. large numbers of which they destroy annually. Several kinds of these birds are known to follow the plow and pick up the white grubs and other insects that are turned up and laid bare. In early days, when grasshoppers did much harm in the state, numerous flocks of these birds were seen to feed upon these insects. The cormorants and pelicans are chiefly destroyers of fishes and frogs, hence can hardly be classed among the most beneficial forms, but whether or not they do any more than do maintain the necessary equilibrium in that particular part of the vast field of nature it is difficult to judge without time for investigation. The various ducks and geese which are also nearly as aquatic in their habits as some of the foregoing, frequently leave their haunts and make excursions into the surrounding country where in summer they feed upon locusts, beetles, and other injurious insects. They also partake of considerable quantities of vegetable food, as grains, wheat seeds, grasses, and other herbage. While not included among the insectivorous forms these birds do much towards diminishing the ever-increasing horde of creeping and jumping things. Ducks and geese on the other hand are largely utilized by us as food, while their feathers make comfortable pillows and coverlets. The herons, cranes, and rails are frequenters of marshes and the margins of streams and bodies of water, where they assist in keeping the various forms among the animal life balanced. Fishes, frogs, snails, insects, and crustaceans are alike devoured by them. The snipe, sandpipers, plovers, phalaropes, curlews etc. are great destroyers of insects, moving as many of them do in great flocks and spreading out over the meadows, pastures, and hillsides, as well as among the cultivated fields, they do a large amount of careful police service in arresting the culprits among insects, they even pry them out of burrows and crevices in the earth where these creatures lurk during daytime only to come forth after nightfall to destroy vegetation. The large flocks of Eskimo curlews that formerly passed through eastern Nebraska did magnificent work during years, 